You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, or not, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR, and, well, Merry Christmas, everybody. This is the episode that will probably be going out either just before Christmas Day or sometime just after it. And as such, I have, as is the usual way of these things, organised a little treat for myself. And the treat is in the form of something that I was planning to save until next year, but I've decided to bring forward to Christmas instead. And that is this. I have, because we have been doing the season reviews of the last sort of 50 years of Doctor Who, and we've pretty much come to the end of those, I've been racking my brain trying to think of something else that we could do as an ongoing thing, but only every now and again. And the plan I've come up with is to have a guest on the podcast and get that guest, somebody concerned with Doctor Who somewhere in the wider universe of Doctor Who, and to get that guest to nominate a top 10 of some kind, either top 10 films, top 10 books, or maybe even top 10 Doctor Who stories. But as long as the person concerned is in some way involved in Doctor Who, that kind of fulfills my Doctor Who remit. So I have my first guest on now, and my first guest is Richard Marson. Hello, Richard, and Merry Christmas. Hello, Happy Christmas. Yeah, well, for those who don't know, and let's face it, if you listen to this podcast at all regularly, you should, and if you're at all interested in Doctor Who, of course you should, Richard Marson, well, most famously, I guess, the uh, editor for, well, the second longest running, maybe, editor of Blue Peter? Yeah, I was there for 10 years. It was a long, old, long, old haul. Yeah, yeah. Well, and for people who don't realise... Editor, in Blue Peter terms, doesn't mean the person who actually cuts the tape together. It's the no, person in that's, charge. That's right. It's, it's in a magazine term. Because the programme's a magazine, yeah. they had an editor rather than what in TV would normally be an executive producer. Exactly. Well, so you were, well, and I guess that probably makes you the most significant person who's ever been on this podcast, Richard. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I'd imagine so. It's That's... not hierarchy. Everybody's significant in some way, he says, in, you know, in a weedy, liberal way. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, but it's, tr- well, being editor of Blue Peter for 10 years, that was a pretty important job. Uh, yeah, well, it was uh, an amazing job. I mean, you know, it was, I, it was my dream job, I, the job I wanted from being a teenager, really. So the fact that it came my way... 
Um, I mean, I think a lot of young people now are brought up with this idea that you can be what you want to be if you only work hard enough. And to some extent, my own experience bears that out. But it's lucky I didn't want to be an astronaut is all I'm saying. (laughs) Okay, because we're probably going to be slightly pushed for time. Maybe let's get into, well, the particular reason you're on is to pick a top 10 and we'll say what that top 10 is in a few minutes but one of the reasons why this is timely now is because of the, and one of the reasons why it's also um particular for doctor who is because of the two books you've written one of which is just being re-released and the two books for anybody who doesn't okay. know well the second of them is drama and delight the life of verity lambert which is you know quite a weighty biography and quite a very well-regarded biography of Verity Lambert, the original producer of Doctor Who. Uh, before we talk about the other book, how did that go and how has it been received? Well, I was delighted with the the reaction that it that it got. I mean, we got some very very nice comments, and not least from people who knew Verity, who were themselves very eminent in their field. People like Sir Jeremy Isaacs. Um, David Putnam, Joanna Lumley. I mean, Verity, is, as most people will know, had the most incredible career beyond Doctor Who. And, uh, you know, she never really stopped evolving. She was working until a few weeks before her death. And the kind of roll call of people that she worked with was so phenomenal. I found that when I started to do the research, really nobody said no. A few things, you know, didn't work out for whatever reason, usually people's schedules or whatever. But by and large, everyone I approached were, they were absolutely delighted to talk about Verity. And so the range of writers, actors, directors, the sheer talent that she was able to kind of muster was extraordinary. And that, of course, was because she herself was hugely talented. Oh, well, she worked well, she worked across the entirety of television, pretty she much, did. in and, her career. And a film. And she had her... I mean, it wasn't a very happy or successful part of her career. But the, I guess the what is worth mentioning is that, you know, she was a female film boss at a time when that was incredibly rare. It still is. Oh, she was a female television boss at a time when that was incredibly rare, too, of course. That, absolutely. I mean, she was, uh, you know, no, she was no pushover. I think you didn't want to get on the wrong side of Verity, put it that way. But I think what I loved about her, because I, I didn't know a huge amount about her before I started working on it. By the end of it, I was a little bit in love with her, if that doesn't sound more, <laughs> morbid and strange, because she had such um, a wonderful uh, joie de vivre. I mean, she really enjoyed her life so she wasn't just defined by her extraordinary work I mean that was a big part of her life but you know she was a very social person she was very cultured and she was a very good and generous loyal interesting friend and because she didn't have kids I think that her friends were her family Um, and you know she, she that the echo of that was still very vivid. Wow well and Of course, the other book takes us to the other end of classic Doctor Who. And of course, that is the one. I don't think I think John would immediately raise an eyebrow and says, what do you mean the other end? (laughs) (laughs) He might do. But then the story tells itself, doesn't it? Well, Well, this originally. Yeah, this came out originally three and a half years ago now, isn't it? Uh, Yes, I guess. Yeah, the earlier part of 2013. So, yes, that's right. Um, yes, it seems like even longer ago, really, because, of course, um, I, I was working on it for some time before it, it was actually published. 
Oh, God, yes. Well, that was a story in itself. Well, we'll get into that story in a minute, I think, because that's part of the reason why it's been reissued. But it is, of course, as was JNT, The Life and Scandalous Times of John Nathan Turner, which was oh, quite notorious at the time it came out. We'll get into yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's back out now, this December, from Milk Publishing in a new edition. <laughs> I can't, you keep conjuring up John. I can hear John say, what do you mean back out? I was never in. <laughs> <laughs> but it, well, here's the thing. You explain. I was going to say why, what the new chapter is and why it's come out with a new chapter. But better if I just ask you to explain. OK, well, look, the thing, here's the thing. I mean, it's gone through, I think, seven printing seven impressions as they call it yeah it was about to go out of print again and and uh the publisher's milk wanted to do another uh printing of it but they just said to me speculatively you know actually if we do it again how do you feel about doing some kind of uh extra material a value-added material that's the phrase they use so yeah. um so obviously we knew there were a huge amount of photographs so the first obvious thing was to say well let's put a new photo section in it and matt the publisher was also very keen to to do a book that was a homage to the kind of wh allen mid-80s style so he commissioned andrew skilleter to do this cover um and i was also very keen to to retitle it because i'd never been happy with the title of the book well which... before you yeah before you go on with that then where did the original title of the book come from well i mean well it's a bit chicken and egg so so the the other extra value added material if you like was this additional chapter eyes yeah. and teeth which is about the whole writing and gestation of the book, which sounds kind of incredibly self-regarding and hopefully it isn't. Um, it's really a kind of journey through the chronology, the timeline of how the book came about, how it was researched and written, and then what happened when it came out, the furore, the reactions, and, and sort of hopefully allowing the reader to get a real sense of of the additional story that developed, if you like, as a result of the book. And part of that in the early stages, you will see that, you know, and this is true for anybody, I guess, that writes a book or makes a TV show, is getting the right title is important. And the original publisher, I mean, it's no secret that the book was originally going to be published by uh, Phantom. And I couldn't really get them, they, they didn't like the titles that I came up with. Um, and so it kind of got to that place where you sort of end up with a compromise that perhaps no, no one's that happy with yeah um they were very keen to have jnt in the title which i didn't really think mattered um i'd i, I started off by saying we should call it page turner which they thought was too clever by half mm. um and then you know then the memory cheats was one title stay tuned was another one um, but it's famous I, I, catchphrases. Yeah, all the famous catchphrases, of which there are several, and most of them became chapter titles. But uh, in, I liked Totally Tasteless because I thought it was it was tongue in cheek. Um, it was, again, very John. You know, it was obviously famously what he asked Conan Baker's costume to be. Yeah. Um, it kind of reflects a lot of the kind of rumbustuous nature of his journey in terms of his professional career. Um, and, it, you know, as I say, it, it was kind of slightly humorous as well. Um, so I thought that that worked. And then uh, no, they didn't like the Phantom didn't like any of those titles. And so eventually we settled on J&T, which they wanted. And I suggested the life and scandalous times deliberately not saying the scandalous life and times. It was yeah. the scandalous times, i.e. through in John's era, there were a lot of scandals, whether it was sort of. 
um, you know, losing your lead actor because he's been sacked from under you, or whether it's the program being cancelled slash postponed, or whether it's the sort of various eyebrow raising activities or hints of, you know, is he is he uh, taking payment for episodes being shown in American conventions? There were always those sort of stories and rumblings around John during his era. So I thought Scandalous Times worked, and it's a sort of modish title, but it's also, of course. A, a bit of a mouthful. And in the end, obviously what we couldn't predict was that it would be picked up in the way that it was by the, the mass media. But then the title really became unhelpful and a bit of a hindrance because it looked as though we were playing a particular game. And which, to be fair to Phantom, never mind being fair to myself, uh, that was never the intention. So, so in a way, the title has unpleasant associations as well. So I thought, actually, if we're doing a new edition, let's go back to you know something that feels um you know a better fit really i suppose actually when it came down to it and you've just said it yourself the reason you've changed the title is partly because of the unpleasant connotations that happened when the book came out yeah yeah but but, but when when the books come out it's kind of too late by that point to sort of realize that that's what's going to happen and you know you can't moan about it i mean you know it's, it's sort of i think people you know, you can't be sort of disingenuous and say, oh, I'm really sad that it's making a lot or getting a lot of attention. I wasn't sad that it got, <laughs> I wasn't sad that it got a lot of attention. I was frustrated that um, despite our kind of efforts to um, limit access to it to people who would take it seriously, uh, even then, those pe- the people that we did allow to have it, like the Guardian and things, they didn't take it. You know, they did go down a particular line with it, which I suppose they were. I suppose they were going to. Yeah. Um, the, the big issue was that the because the Jimmy Savile story had broken um, in the autumn of the previous year. Um, I guess, given the anti BBC agenda of most of the newspapers in the UK. It was just that they were just scenting blood. It was just the possibility that they could get a few more anti-BBC headlines jumping on that same bandwagon. And and that was the really kind of distasteful part of it, because, you know, there's no doubt that John did cross lines and did behave in a way that nowadays would have swiftly left to him being given the boot. But um, but at the time, you know, he behaved in a way that was totally uh, you know, kind of fit the type, the era in which he lived, and a lot of straight and gay producers were behaving in a similar way. Whether it was drugs, alcohol, having sex with whoever was willing to have sex, but the point was it was consensual. You know, he wasn't yeah. he wasn't someone who who was abusing in the way that someone. I mean, Jimmy Savile was a monster, and uh, you know, John had lapses of judgment, but he certainly wasn't a monster. And well, as I think, I, I think the book does show hopefully that there's a lot of complexity to him well yeah yeah absolutely it does well (laughs) talking of page turner that's absolutely what it was i mean one of the odd things about that is it's one of those situations where there's an ambiguity things that weren't legal then are now that's right and he's being sort of coruscated for doing things that these days we wouldn't bat an eyelid i don't don't know about that i think i still think that even now if you had a bbc producer in their 40s um uh, inviting fans of the program that they make to tv center and then uh 
you know, basically asking them if they wanted to have a roll in the hay. Um, when that person was sort of 16, 17, 18, I, that's not appropriate. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not the point I was making. The point I was making was that that there's this weird balance between the sort of legality of certain things and the sort of moral issues as well that go with them. Yeah. I'm saying we kind of, it's difficult to look at something that happened 30 years ago from a modern perspective without bringing hindsight to it and without understanding that the people who are actually involved in these things don't have the benefit of that hindsight. Well, also, the other thing is that, you know, the shift in how things are seen, the kind of, if you like, the moral climate to use yeah, yeah. Popper's tone. I mean, there's no doubt that the world has changed very much in terms of people's ethics and to what's allowed in the say the workplace never mind anywhere else and and most of that i think although there is a kind of puritanism which sometimes is unhelpful and joyless um the the plus side is that a lot of people who previously were not protected at all do now have um some protection so you know women uh you know young people you know there is more of a sense certainly in television um I don't know if that's true of every job, but certainly in the industry I'm in, you know, you can see that there is more respect shown to people, that, that there's not such exploitation of people on in the hierarchy. So that, for instance, when I started as a floor assistant, which now would be called a runner, um, you know, you had to put up with really quite appalling treatment sometimes, mm. whether it was people calling you a mutt, you know, um, and we might have to bleep that. I uh, might or, have to. <laughs> um, but, you know, but I mean, that, you know, I could say now you would bleep it, you would have a reaction to it. But at the time, you know, someone calling you that routinely, you just had to take it on the chin. And if it upset you, that was seen as your problem. Um, and likewise, the, there was a lot more kind of bullying, I think, in the workplace. And I don't think that bullying doesn't exist anymore. And perhaps it's changed its name and become subtle and they do it in a different way. But I think it is it, there's definitely been an advance made in, you know, certain things not being acceptable. And certainly the way that women were talked about openly and, you know, hit upon, touched, you know, all of which was going on back then as a kind of matter of course. That's very much not OK now. And that's got to be a good thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no one's going to sit there and argue. (laughs) But my point is that John, you know, worked in a climate where, you know, he was he was certainly no worse and in a lot of ways a lot better than other producers of his era uh, in that he certainly had a kind streak and a generous streak. And I think he was sort of lazily opportunistic. So if he was half pissed in the BBC bar and he thought someone might be up for it, he'd, he'd give it a go. I don't think he was predatory. Uh, of course, the, the, the thing where it became slightly clouded was that his boyfriend was and his and his your partner, I should say, rather than boyfriend, Gary was predatory and was, you know, that, you know, as as you'll know from the book, there aren't many people who can conjure up a a lot of nice things to say about Gary. Although it's an important point to make that Gary, as we all are, is the product, was the product of his own dysfunction. And he had, I kind of didn't go into this in the book because it it was John's biography, not Gary's, but Mm. he clearly, and also I couldn't substantiate some of the things I was told, which I sort of, again, felt, well, I'm, I don't want to print too much hearsay, but I'm fairly convinced from what I heard during the research that that Gary had a very difficult and and often very challenging childhood in South Africa, uh, particularly with relation to his sexuality. And I think those things left their scars. 
Well, that's one of the other things that's kind of a point to make about the reception the book had is that even in 2013, you know, even in the 21st century, part of the reaction is still inherently, even if not sort of right there on the surface, a homophobic reaction. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely it is. Yeah. And, no, and that, this... that's true. That's there's no getting away from that. And, you know, homophobia, just as with sexism, has Im- improved in that it's no longer OK and it is challenged. But of course, it's still there and it plays out in different ways. And it's a bit like water. You know, it kind of find, finds its way out um, and, and might be dressed up in a different way. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I've just been reading um, Running Through Corridors. The, oh, yeah. The Toby Haydock and Rob Shearman book. Now, I like both those guys very much and they've always been very sweet to me. But I am uncomfortable with some of the comments they make about one of the actors in Doctor Who because there are comments made several times about this guy and they're really about his sexuality. And I kind of I just don't feel OK with it. You know, it's rather spoiled my enjoyment of the uh, of the text. And and I think. You know, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I've w- worked in an industry where it's OK, completely OK to be gay at uh, one level. You know, people go television's full of gay people and it is. But I've also seen that a lot of gay people in television do suffer from homophobia in in this in the private behind closed doors when yeah. people oh oh maybe that person's a bit flamboyant or a bit too indiscreet to be trusted with such and such a job and i'm sure that kind of conversation goes on in the law and banking and teaching and all sorts of professions where there is still this uh, homophobic vein that runs through things yeah uh, well it's like well homophobia sexism and you know the color of your skin it's always been my contention that in a few hundred years time these things will be so forgotten that nobody i agree but i think probably something else will crop up in its place it's almost it's almost like human beings need to they they don't deal very well with minorities or people who feel other or not like them i must admit i've never seen i do think television has been is very good in terms of um uh, I, I've never really seen much in the way of racism, thankfully, but I have seen a lot of sexism and a lot of homophobia. Well, we'll get in. Uh, we'll get into television a bit more in a few minutes, of course, and these subjects might come up again. I tell you what, human beings need to feel is a sense of a hierarchy, whether it's a sort of professional hierarchy or whether it's a cultural <laughs> hierarchy. People create them, don't they? If they're yeah. not, if they're not there, they get they get created and or they evolve. So going back to the book and part, if I'm to understand correctly, because I've not got a copy of it yet, but if I understand it correctly, part of this new chapter as well actually deals with the aftermath and what happened when the book came out. A lot of it does. I mean, it goes it covers about two and a half years in terms of the chronology. And, you know, I I did obviously have to think very carefully about because it's composed of emails, diary extracts texts tweets all sorts of stuff but you know you have to sort of think really carefully about well, what are you going to put in the public domain especially with diaries because i think i did at least three edits because i write a diary every day and have done for years and i can't see the point of writing a diary if you're not completely frank who are you writing it for yeah that doesn't imply that you're writing it for publication 
And so, you know, sometimes you're bitchy, sometimes you're unfair, sometimes you're, you know, rude, nasty, whatever, all of those things. And it's fine to do that in the safe space of a diary. It's like and you don't actually always mean it in a diary. It's how you feel on that day. Well, you very often I discover that I'd completely forgotten how I felt about certain things or you're just having a rant. And, you know, the next day you feel completely differently. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that three years later you then think it's reasonable to print, you know, Exactly. So so I had to kind of think, well, you know, yes, that's fair. Yes, that's you know, that was that was an accurate summing up of how I felt at the time. Um, But, you know, I I also didn't want to be, you know, I I wanted to kind of keep it within uh, readable limits as well, because otherwise it could have been another book in itself. I mean, it's twenty five thousand words, the extra chapter. I was going to say that's it's you it know, was, from what i know of it that could draft, have been a book couldn't it the first draft was sixty thousand words which is a book so there you wow. are well, well given that you've said then that you know you you had to choose very carefully what went into it what what was say for example the most important thing the most you thought important bringing, thing was, yeah the most important thing was obviously to make me sound marvellous and everyone else. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you know I, I did think, you know, it was very important to try to, again, balance is important, I think. Um, but when you're dealing with diaries, I mean, I love diaries. I love reading diaries. Um, and I think they they are quite uh, uh, an addictive form of uh, of storytelling in terms of, you know, you, you they have their own. Uh, wonderfully built in by the fact that they belong to the moment in which they're written you know whereas other forms of writing you know you sit down and if you're writing a biography you're writing with the with the benefit of hindsight and all your research whereas if you're quoting diary extracts they 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 give you a snap shot of how you felt at that moment and at that time and that's why they're interesting and valuable and they're also very uh, intimate in the first place well, yeah. of course it's, i mean yeah. let's face it a lot of the great victorian novels were written in the form of diaries weren't they yeah Which... well, they were written in installments i suppose mm. the thing is the thing is that um uh i think somebody once said that nobody writes a diary is entirely unaware that somebody else might some someday read them. And I'm under no illusions. You know, I'm not I'm not Samuel Pepys on a budget. <laughs> I, sus- I suspect that one of these days, either myself or my daughter will probably toss them all into the recycling. But, um, I, you know, and to me, they're, they're like cleaning your teeth. You know, they're a good thing to do is almost a review of your day. And I do find good advice, top tip coming away. If you've got stuff preying on your mind or things that you're thinking about, putting them down on paper is sometimes a really good way of doing that before you go to sleep, because it sort of means, OK, it's there. I don't need to worry about it now. I can kind of let my mind relax. Ah, very interesting. So go on then back to this subject of what was the most important thing to get in. I mean, what I'm asking, I guess, is. We had a period from just before the book came out. In fact, it pretty much started with that interview we did together. It was all your it? fault, JR. Yeah. yeah, I don't know whether to take the credit or the blame. Well, I, th- I think you'll, I mean, actually, I find that I was fairly annoyed that uh, at the time, I think there is an entry in there that refers to the fact that I think that you more or less transcribed the interview uh, verbatim. And I suppose I had thought that perhaps it was going to be written up in the form, you know, like, you know yeah of, and i think the disadvantage of that was you know i just kind of brain dumped away and just ch- chatted on like i tend to and some of the things i said perhaps you know they looked a bit kind of guileless and a bit this uh, is actually why i prefer to do it in the form of a podcast now because 
you still get it verbatim, but in the yeah. podcast, you can tell what a person's thinking a- more than you can on the page. You can tell when they're joking. You can tell yeah. when they're being ironic. And I think that the big problem of that interview was that there were certain things that were said that then when they were in cold, hard print, of course, you know, inevitably things don't always, you know, it's the bit of advice I always give to young colleagues who now, now, you know, Oh, there's the clock. Um, <laughs> they, <laughs> I'll let that go. It's gone. Uh, you know, that when you're, when you're sending an email or a text, you know, you always have to bear in mind what do you actually mean? Because sometimes it can look sarcastic. It can look rude. It can look angry when you maybe didn't mean any of those things. Yeah. Um, and so the, the other aspect of that interview was that having done that, you know, I decided along with, with Matt West that we weren't going to talk to any of the press, the, the major press, who were all gagging to get quotes and to get copies of the, because we knew that whatever I said and whatever we gave them, they would simply create the story they wanted to create. Well, they absolutely uh, did. Any, most of well, the quotes they, they took well, out of that interview were pretty innocuous, really, to end yeah, up on the front was, page of a newspaper. Well, that was a sort of good thing, really, because they didn't really get what they could have done um and because they really did find it very difficult to get hold of a copy of the book itself i mean they went bonkers you know the daily mail offered a large amount of money not just to me and matt but also to people who had review copies it always pissed me off that i'd done this interview and they're all quoting from it on their front pages yet not one of them thought to ask me (laughs) if i had a copy well yeah you see if you could have made some money certainly i think one one review some guy was offered 15 grand which was less than we were being offered but nonetheless really that was a lot of money to be offered for Mm. just passing on your your review pdf anyway to cut a long story short you know they did go their own sweet way having having tried their level best to 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 kind of get hold of it and twist it and all the rest of it and then you were into that media circus Mm. um and there was that was interesting because there was an awful lot of um there was a lot of hypocrisy I mean, the pe- a lot of the people who were kind of throwing their arms up in the air and saying this is shocking and disgraceful and you're just muckraking and all the rest of it were also kind of wallowing in the, you know, the, it, it was like the kind of, I thought it was interesting that the review, which was slightly wringing its hands, uh, there's the doorbell. <laughs> so the review that appeared in The Guardian, which was sort of slightly kind of censorious and, and hand-wringing as though this was a kind of terrible piece of scandal although it did commend the level of research as i recall it only really focused on the two chapters that dealt with the kind of the the sexual uh toing and froing it didn't really point out that that was although it was a percentage of the book that overall there was a lot more stuff about a lot of other things so you know i guess it was sort of like having your cake and eating it which is of course how the media works so you know you can't complain about it or be surprised by it but it's just that kind of whole trying to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. Were you annoyed? At the, I mean, most of, from what I remember of it, most of the people who knew the book basically came out on your side and said, look, we realise that this whole Ferrari is about a tiny fraction of the book. And yeah. not only that, it misrepresents it. But there were one or two people who you'd have thought would know better, who sort of yeah. came out and said, oh, this is not the book that I thought it was going to be sort of thing. I think what they were really saying, I mean, I mean it's dangerous for me to say that because, you know, who am I to say what they were saying? But well. <laughs> the, sense, the sense that I got was that... 
um, people were uncomfortable with the timing because it was the 50th anniversary year. Yeah. Which, okay. Fair point. But you know, the time that don't know that that was really a major issue. Uh, and that people also felt that the reaction in the tabloid press and all the rest of it was so negative that that was the book's fault somehow as though that negated any value that the book had. I mean, to my mind, whether I wrote it or didn't, John Nathan Turner was absolutely deserving of a serious biography because yes. he was such a major player in, in the history of Doctor Who and his story was, was worthy of it. But I think that I was very sustained by the fact that I felt the people who knew John and Gary closest who were the nearest thing to family you know fiona coming and ian fraser you know some of the guys they'd had really strong relationships with um you know some of their colleagues they, they who remained in touch with them they were kind of implacably uh, clear that although there were parts of the story that obviously they found difficult uncomfortable sad it was nonetheless authentic fair balanced and caught john in the light and the shade whereas the people who reacted against it frankly a lot of them hadn't had much to do with john in the last 10 years of their life for one reason or another i thought there was sometimes an element of projection of issues that they had they were sort of kind of mm. transferring um i thought it was very interesting that nicola bryant who i interviewed and she told me about this terrible story of john spitting in her face and she was very upset when she told me the story and i said and i asked her i said well, you know why you why is this uh, i mean uh, not why is it upsetting because it's obviously it's not yeah, yeah. story, but that it was clearly so you know in other words you don't have to tell me this and i even if you do i don't have to print it but at some level she clearly did want to put it in the public domain she said to she said oh you know i know that if i if this story is printed i'll be asked about it for the rest of time which is true um, but she obviously took the decision for whatever motive that she did want that story to be out there. Otherwise, she wouldn't have told me or she would have told me and then said, but don't print it, which other people sometimes did. And, and obviously you would respect that. Um, and I think that maybe maybe she regretted that. Maybe she would felt that she shouldn't have. I don't know. And that there was an element of transference and, and that, you know, in the words, it's sort of shoot the messenger. Um, sometimes also there's a little bit of disingenuity where they think I want this story to be out. But exactly. I don't want to look culpable exactly. for being the person who's got exactly. it out there. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you know, as I say, the vast majority of the people who contributed um, in, in great detail uh, and very generously to the book. Um, were unequivocal in their support and that meant a huge amount and that also meant that you know where there were one or two people who didn't sometimes you know I wasn't entirely surprised by the one or two people who who were a little bit like that mm. you know, I just thought I kind of thought it was it was unfortunate you know some, you know never nice you you want everybody to love it you want everybody well. to, of course you do but you get that would be naive you know and 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 the reasons why people react to something negatively you know, you're building your part if you think it's because of you or necessarily what you've written. It may be to do with other things. And, you know, like, for instance, with Colin, it had clearly stirred up a lot of, you know, he had some great times in Doctor Who. Getting the part was amazing. But he also had some really, truly miserable times. I mean, it was he, he lost his son um, just 
shortly after he got the part, which is about as wretched as any person can feel. Yes. And then and then, you know, he lost the job very publicly, very humiliatingly. You know, and as we know, it's famous in Doctor Who fandom that, you know, Colin's very prickly about popularity polls and things. But, you know, you ask yourself why, you know, he's a good guy. And I think, you know, witty, funny, clever man, you know, I've always really hugely enjoyed talking to him when I've met him. But I think that he has a lot of angst and unfinished business around Doctor Who. And I think the book, in a very personal way, stirred up a lot of that, those memories. And he read things in there that were said about him by people like Jonathan Powell or other contributors that I, I think he found very, very difficult. And, you know, who can blame him? So maybe that's why he thought actually i could have done without this yeah it, because in but, some jr the point was yeah. even though that's true if you're writing the biography of john nathan turner you still have to go there yeah actually, jonathan powell's views were incredibly relevant and important to quote you couldn't have said actually you know he is being a bit blunt and awful here so you know i'm not going to quote him you know i i was very grateful for the fact that most of the contributors were i felt very honest and upfront and that's what i wanted i didn't want to play act my way through uh, most doctor who biographies that i've read that are printed by the niche press are you know they're 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 pussyfoot around or they they in the guise of celebration they just don't really to me make sense because all they are are uh, everything's marvelous everything's wonderful it's, and it's not that i want everything not to be wonderful and marvelous it's just that you know that the reality of making a tv show and working very hard uh, on something that hasn't got enough time and money and you know still making something amazing you know there's always sort of tensions and relationships and all sorts of issues and that's very interesting to me whereas watching a uh, reading a hagiography or or just a load of hyperbole is i can't really see the value of it so i wanted to write a book that reflected the real world in which doctor who was made and the real pressures that those people were under well and actually you've written a book and i mean this came up in the reviews or afterwards it did certainly you've written a book that basically gives what must be one of the first real pictures of what it's actually like to work in an industry like that well that was what i wanted it to do so feel like that that's great and you know certainly that's what some people have said certainly it felt to me authentic to what I remembered of that time, but then subsequently what my own experiences in television have been like, you know, that, you know, you can't, I, I suppose you're that very, if you, you, you occupy an odd place when you've had the career that I've had, because I sort of did feel like I really did have a sense of what it must have been like at various points for John. And I had an empathy for him that I think was very useful in terms of trying to kind of, do justice to actually some of the things he he managed magnificently well and i loved i loved that about him that you know when everything was crumbling around him he was still kind of eyes and teeth and let's do the show anyway and let's do the best we can and why not try for this and you know i mean even the bits of doctor who that he did that i don't particularly care for um like the sort of the last few years he did manage to kind of regenerate himself in a way and that was a lot to do with you know he kind of he kind of cannily trusted new new blood and all the rest of it and partly because i think he had nowhere else to go but you know there's a lot to admire in his sheer humanity yeah so one of the things about the book is that the way you found 
of telling the story where you basically let the interviewers tell the stories themselves and every now and again you put your own voice pops in almost as if you're one of the interviewees giving a perspective on what's <laughs> well, happening i well, don't think, i have to say i don't when i revisited it i i don't think it was i think it could have been better written and certainly i i would have edited it much more rigorously had i had it been being published say by a mainstream publisher um but i did have a very strong sense that a lot of what was being said felt fresh and i I felt that it had to be direct quotes because I felt that if in the normal biographical way you are in the back seat as the writer yeah. and first of all that wasn't possible because I was sort of you know in a minor way very minor way involved but you know I kind of had to declare that because it was part of the whole experience of writing it that I was a sort of witness to some of the things um and then I had this parallel kind of career in a way um so that was why I crop up I suppose um, oh, and, and, the... and then in terms of, you know, just quoting, sometimes there was, you know, I felt, oh, God, we've had this 17 people all saying the same thing. But I felt that, you know, in a way that was going to be important to add the veracity. I thought Doctor Who fans are notorious. They want to prove it. I want to know. I want, you know, and and the other thing that we should have done and didn't do, um, which we did for Verity, was to do detailed footnotes throughout the text so that absolutely everything was attributed and sometimes that makes it feel like a bit of an academic read but it does satisfy then that the 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 who fan reading it knows that everything comes from an attributed source and isn't just you know me trying to kind of weight it one way or the other well these books aren't really just for doctor who fans anyway these are these are textbooks for anybody who's interested in television well, it's very nice of you to say that, but, you know, uh, I'm not kidding myself that the vast majority of them will sell to doctors. <coughs> I suppose that's true. Well, one last question before we move off the topic of the books, unless there's anything else you want to bring no, up. No, no. But, well, this new chapter, this new edition of the John Nathan Turner book, has that for you got a weight off, as it were? It, it doesn't make you happy that you've been able to go back and look at it again and well actually i was very i was in two minds first of all i was very kind of thought do i need the aggro of people saying oh it's just you know self-justification or him building his part or you know self-aggrandizing or whatever and all of those things you know you you, legitimate criticisms if you're going to do a chapter about the making of something or the writing of something um so i was a bit worried about that and thought do i need the aggro you know it's not like i was going to be getting any more money for it if we just reprinted it every time it sold you you know it wasn't a kind of financial thing um i thought it was an interesting exercise so what i did was i said i'll let me do a long draft first um and see where it takes me and see what i've been actually the first draft my wife read it and I read it and I felt really uneasy with it because it did feel very unexpurgated, shall we say. <laughs> um, and so then I kind of thought, oh, there's a job of work to actually edit this properly. And also, not least, to make it more coherent and more, um, you know, you don't want kind of three pages when a paragraph will do. You know, people want to read it as a as a uh, as a chapter, not as an as a whole kind of, you know, war and peace. 
Um, but once I got to that stage, once I start, then I thought, oh, no, that actually this is interesting. And it does. And it isn't just, you know, you know, me trying to settle scores or anything because I, I don't have any axe to grind. You know, I've got no complaints. I couldn't be more thrilled with not only how they made the book look and all of that. I, you know, I thought it looked fantastic in its various versions. And it obviously it was very successful. So. Uh, I, I can't, you know, I didn't have any kind of chips on my shoulder at all. So it was more an interesting exercise to say now some time has passed. Actually, some of that stuff was so weird and so sort of kind of funny and odd and yeah. the rest of it. Why not? And the fact that it was all kind of going on in that 50th anniversary year where I was going to some of the kind of 50th anniversary parties and the TV centre was closing. So I thought it was worth recording, you know, because I also know that other people share my anoraki interest in those yeah things. yeah well as somebody who was just on the very fringes of all that you know it always felt to me like that was a story that was worth putting on the record because yeah, i mean well, you'll have to see when you read it but yeah you know it, we, we'll see no doubt it'll please some people and and pain others but it was ever thus well it's always been one of my contentions that although things that happen on the internet are there forever they don't get looked for, most of them. But to put an actual chapter in the book where you say, look, and this is what happened when this book first came out. Actually, this is one of the few books where that actually makes sense. Yeah, I guess that might change in the future because now, you know, certainly email, text, tweets, Facebook, whatever, all of those things are so much more the way people can communicate that. And, and there's no sign that kind of print books are going to change because I think people do like to read a book. Yes. And if, if you're writing a history or a biography, I mean, it's certainly going to be a pressure for social historians because the weight of research, I mean, it's difficult enough now if you're researching Verity Lambert or something, there's a colossal amount of stuff to wade through. But if you're researching, I don't know, Stephen Moffat, um, and assuming you can get access to things like emails and texts and things like that, you know, there's loads of it. There's tons of oh, it. Yeah. I mean, I thought that when, you know, Russ, Russell wrote his book that was largely email exchanges between him and Ben Cook and stuff, I thought, well, you know, he's a prolific emailer. And so, you know, my goodness me, you could there's probably volumes of his emails, which would I would probably find very interesting um, and lots of other people would, too. But who's going to ever kind of edit all of that? I'm sure that will happen. There will be elements of that. Yeah. Well, that's a the, the Russell T. Davis one is a huge book. And that is what, a year's worth of emails or something? Well, that's what I know. He communicates like that. And he's sort yeah. of very eloquent. And I mean, you know, you could absolutely imagine that, you know, the Russell T. Davis, rather than the diaries, the emails of. Well, know, yeah. Imagine doing that. his whole career. I'm sure. And I'm sure you could do, you know, that with lots of writers and directors. I mean, um, you know, Alan Bennett's diaries have just come out, the latest volume of those. Um, and he's still writing in diary form. But I'm sure there are a lot of people who really chiefly communicate in email and collecting emails together. I'm sure that will happen. Right. Talk. Well, before we do, uh, Milk Publishing, we better spell that out for people who <laughs> don't know so they can go and find a copy of this book if they want to. But it's M-I-W-K. It certainly is. For reasons going back to something that people can find, if I recall correctly, on the Pyramids of Mars DVD. Well, they won't be very happy. I mean, Matt's already complained because one of the diary entries in the book, in the new chapter, um, I record my views about the name Milk, and they're not very flattering. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, well, I'm it's looking forward name. to reading that then. <laughs> 
Right, let's bring up the other subject that you're here for then, and yes. it's the top ten. Oh, and... the agony of the top ten. Well, I alluded to it a minute or two ago, but the, the top ten that you have chosen to do is... Television programmes. Uh, what a surprise. <laughs> well, yes, but top ten television programmes. Yeah, for somebody who works in television, A... That means you're going to have a bit more of an insight into the oh, things you're talking about. Yeah, maybe. But I've done this. I mean, I've loved, you know, I'm the television generation. I think kids now are the internet generation, but I was the television generation. And yeah. you know, I love, I don't understand people. And there are a lot of them who work in TV, who profess to not like TV or not watch it. I love television. I'm totally immersed in it. So trying to choose 10, you know, your desert island, 10 TV shows of all time is incredibly hard. <laughs> but I've made you do it. You have. You've tormented me. You've okay. <laughs> okay, then. Tell me what's at number 10, because this <laughs> okay. is going to be interesting, because I am not as immersed in television as A, I would like to be, and certainly not B, as you are, so you might welcome up with stuff I've never even heard of. No, I don't seen. think so, because I've kind of gone for the things that I think, if I couldn't ever see anything other than these 10 programmes, what would sustain me? And in some cases, I've chosen you know, something from a genre, because, for instance, I love children's drama, and there are easily, conservatively, 50, 60 children's dramas I could have chosen that I love. But you can't. So you've got no. one to represent all of them. Um, anyway, number 10, In With a Bullet. And this is a bit of a cheat, so I hope you'll let me get away with this. It's the Well, I don't have any choice. It's well, your top 10. <laughs> it's, it's the BBC's Ghost Story for Christmas. So it's an umbrella title for a series of one-off adaptations usually of mr james ghost stories that they did in the 70s that were then repeated and i can you know i've got i think one of the interesting things about people's fondness for tv shows is often about your associations with who you watch the shows with oh yeah so that with these ghost stories i i have very clear memories of my brother and i didn't get on hugely well a lot when we were growing up you know, love him though I do. Um, but we did really like watching certain TV shows together. So we'd watch scary things, horror movies, Hammer Double Bills, episodes of Thriller, The New Avengers, things like that. And these ghost stories, we we lapped up. We, you know, we really liked them and he still likes them now. Um, and then I watched them with my son as well. So they have very good memories of sort of that kind of pleasurable fear. Yeah. Uh, and they're also part of that. They're usually all shot on film, beautifully done with all the kind of actors of the 1970s era, you know, that the Doctor Who fans will know and love as well whether it's the small parts or whether it's the stars like sort of robert hardy or whoever and they're never too long they don't outstay their welcome and and just that kind of thrill of horror and dread while you're safely by the fire with yeah 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 with someone that's why i love them so that's why they're there well, I was going to say as well, one of the reasons they work so well at Christmas, not necessarily because it's Christmas, but because of the time of year, is because yeah. you're basically already huddling against exactly. the cold outside. Exactly. Well, somebody once said, and I think this is extremely astute, that there are no really good ghost stories written after the invention of electricity. Yeah. Uh, 
but I mean that's slightly unfair because Susan Hill's The Woman in Black, the original version, not the rubbishy film, uh, <laughs> is is one of the most brilliant ghost stories ever. But then it is set in the Victorian era, so yes. you know I think that setting a ghost story after the invention of electricity is tricky. And the, the great thing about the ghost stories for Christmas is that the way that they were shot, and I didn't know this obviously until years later, that they were shot with a very small budget, and very often they didn't have much in the way of a lighting budget. So the fact that they, you know the Stygian gloom <laughs> the scenes is in fact to do with the fact they didn't have enough lighting so they just had to kind of make a virtue of candlelight and shadows but I love them so wow they're there I know okay I'll let you get away with that right <laughs> I'll tell you what if we're being really strict we won't include the the 2000s reboot you know where yeah I know recently. Okay, what's the number nine then? Number nine. Number nine is uh, complete contrast. Is the 1980s version of Map and Lucia, um, the E.F. Benson novels. Very, very funny, which I've watched umpteen times. When I met my wife, I was amazed to discover that she liked these too. She'd seen them as well. And they were pretty obscure in the 80s. It was quite hard to find anyone who'd really heard of them. They were made for Channel 4. Um, they were a bit of a cult thing, another cult thing. Yeah. Uh, and they're really about, english snobbery and class hierarchy we were talking about hierarchy earlier and they are just so brilliant i think it's one of the most perfectly cast shows i've ever seen there isn't really anybody in it from the small parts to the stars who are who are prunella scales and geraldine McEwen and nigel hawthorne um i don't think anybody in it puts a foot wrong and it's also beautifully beautifully designed the only fly in the ointment is that it was that terrible era where everybody thought, let's do everything on video. Oh. So the exteriors are shot on this kind of awful washed out. It looks like a kind of home movie really now, um, which is such a shame because, as I say, it certainly cost must have cost a fortune because the costumes, the, the sort of sets, the, the look of it is fabulous. It's just let down by the production standards of the era. So what's the premise for that? And when is it the set? Pre- it's set in the 1920s, which is an era I've always liked. It's um, set in a, in a, in, it's actually meant to be, the real place is Rye uh, near the sea. Um, and it's about really the one upmanship between two characters, Miss Mapp and Lucia Pilsen, who are, they, they are the kind of re- queen bees of local society in this town. And they're always trying to score points off each other. And, um, they did a Mark Gatiss um, and Steve Pemberton did a, a kind of a, a modern version, a modern version. What do I mean? A, <laughs> a contemporary version a couple of Christmases ago. That was very successful in terms of it was very well done. I didn't find an audience, unfortunately, so they didn't do any more. Um, because, as I say, I think it's truly a cult thing. And E.F. Benson, who wrote them, um, here's the link with number 10. He wrote some of the very finest ghost stories, too. And I read his ghost stories way before I was aware that he'd written these very funny social comedies. He was obviously uh, gay, but in an era where, you know, that dare not speak its name. Yeah, yeah. I think he must have got a lot of fun uh, indulging his sort of camp and uh, bitchy side by writing these. They're, they're clearly based on real people and they're just very funny. Very well, it sounds... It sounds a bit like, um, should we say, Jane Austen meets um, Oscar Wilde or something like that. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it's all in the same tradition. It's very English humour, and I mean English rather. Yeah, yeah. 
you know it's it's uh, it's very singular so i don't know whether it would translate although i suspect they'll you know they'll certainly have the fans in, in the states and things very exquisitely snobbish oh, brilliant i know i i remember it being on but i i would not have been in, of an age to appreciate it but it sounds certainly like something worth tracking down should we move on to number eight let's so okay. here we go number eight was the hideous category of children's drama because there are so many and i was i got it down to two um uh oh, let me know what your runner-up was then go okay, on okay so the one i've gone for is the children of green no oh was, um made it actually after i shouldn't really have been watching children's drama by then i was too old but i was at university but i i knew the p i knew the caliber by then i was interested in tv and i knew about the director colin kant who was the great director incidentally the doctor who never got i don't think john understood him or was aware of him but he would have been a brilliant graham harperish director i think and he did most of the he was the early director of grange hill also the producer and it was his idea a very clever idea to put the camera on the level of the child in Grange Hill which was really yes. subtle, but clever and he he did some beautiful six-part uh children's dramas throughout the kind of age 70s and 80s and this was one of them the children of green an adaptation of a book I'd really liked as a child they're actually a series of books but this particular one is a I it would never get I don't think it would get made now because nothing much happens, really. It's a haunting story. It's about a child who goes to stay with his grandmother and discovers that the house in which she lives is haunted by the children who used to live there, who are his ancestors. And as a lonely boy with no one to play with over the Christmas holidays, he sort of makes friends with these shadows. And it's it's really exquisite. And it, they had the confidence to make this without in any way playing to the attention span of the average child. And it's interesting because I showed it fairly recently to a 10 year old child for a child, a child of a friend of ours. And initially, literally the first few minutes, he was squirming with tedium and saying, <laughs> this is so old fashioned. This is so lame. And then this, you could sort of see incrementally the story hooked him. Yeah. And by, he was absolutely gripped. Of course, he had to watch it all in one go because modern children can't wait. That's how but, it works. <laughs> but he loved it. And, you know, and I found, you know, that actually there's always something new. The rich, such is the richness of the production, the music, the everything about it was fabulous so that was the winner but the runner-up was an itv a six-part especially written for television um called the clifton house mystery oh yes yeah which was part of that bristol htv in bristol made these sunday kind of children's dramas like children of the stones and so on and this clifton house mystery is just one that i remembered watching at the time i was the perfect age when it went out and i kind of wished i was in it as well as not that i especially aspired to be an actor but i thought it was such a thrilling story and you know it's amazing because it's entirely studio bound um and it's full of kind of slightly planky middle class kids but at the time they didn't seem to be that planky because that's what we were like if you were a middle class kid you were planky <laughs> you, know, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you weren't cool um and i really find watching that very cozy but anyway we're not allowed to talk about that because that was well, the run up well, so children, children of green no wins well children of green no by pure coincidence was written about for one of my books by somebody i now podcast with oh well there you are and i recently reviewed it when it was uh, when finally it came out on dvd 
Yes, I was so pleased that it did come out because, you know, I, I think it's very special. It was one of those things, and this often happens with children's TV, doesn't it? It's one of those things that people have this sort of race memory of, but can't quite remember exactly what it was sometimes. And yeah. then the DVD comes out and it's like, oh, thank God for that. Now I can finally sit down yeah. and watch it and understand it. It got overshadowed by a box of delights, mate. Yeah. Made, you know, but, but there you go. Anyway, that's, that's, that's number eight. And number seven is well. Number seven, I think, completely, uh, in complete contrast, is an American sitcom, The Golden Girls, um, which I'm not mad on sitcoms and not that mad on American sitcoms, although there've been some incredibly good ones. But The Golden Girls is just for me, it's so cosy. I, <laughs> I I watched it. It was one, of, you know, one of the few things I used to watch at university. It was on a Friday night on Channel Four in the same sort of slot they used to always run. Roseanne and things like that. it was on at 10 o'clock I think because it was regarded as quite racy it's about four retired ladies of a certain age hence why they're the golden girls yeah they're yeah in a flat in Miami and basically they wisecrack their way through their senior years and I mean it's dated a bit now but at the time it was it, it was addressing kind of taboo subjects and it was older women on tv being really funny uh for me the standout star was B. Arthur who plays a very kind of um, sarcastic character. She's always got a good one-liner. And Americans do that kind of Jewish humour, I guess, better than yeah. anything else in the world. And I used to watch it then with friends. Then again with my wife. My daughter grew up loving it. Um, again, the associations of it being something that with people really close to me, we would all laugh. And a lot of the catchphrases from it are catchphrases that I would use to those people. So it's uh, special from that point of view, although I suspect that as time goes on, it's not one of those sitcoms that will age that well. It's very much a, of, of its time. Um, but it but it, it was it was unmissable. And um I can still watch it now. And although I can almost mouth along to the lines of the <laughs> episodes, you know, it, it gives me great pleasure. Well, it's one of those shows that people making programs now still refer back to almost as a, a learning tool for what they're doing. Well, it was, it was a great ensemble show. I mean, you know, some of the writers on it, one of the writers went off and created and wrote Desperate Housewives. And, you know, it was a kind of talent factory like those American team written shows are. But also it's watching four actors, senior or actresses, I should say, um, you know, kind of in the twilight of their career to some extent. But they know it all. You know, they've, they've, they're at that point where they really know about comedy timing. And you know, they were it was brilliant, really brilliant. And number six. Number six, again, another major contrast. Um, again, there could have been a lot of contenders for this. This is sort of the big classic serial. Um, in my list and that's Brideshead Revisited um, and that was I mean again for my era of my generation when that program came out I had to get I was at boarding school and I had to get special permission because it was on a Monday night and it was after prep we used to have to do prep from 7.30 to 9 and then we had about an hour before we had to go to bed and that's when it was on and we were very rarely allowed to watch TV and you had to get a, a chit signed by a prefect and pay five five people to the house fund if you wanted to watch a television program at the approved time and with this i also had to get my housemaster's permission because it was seen as having adult themes dum 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 <laughs> but because because it was obviously written by the original novel was by evelyn war who you know everybody knew who he was and he was well regarded it was seen as kind of an improving program so i was allowed to watch it the long and the short of it was i got my chit signed and i paid my 5p 
um, and then discovered the first episode was two hours long, so I wasn't allowed to see the second half of it. Oh, no. Uh, but subsequent episodes were an hour long. But, uh, you know, to me, again, something that sadly I don't think, now it would be HBO that would do it because the BBC and ITV would be too poor and too scared to commit 13 hours of of huge budget location filming to a, something that in terms of its narrative pace is very, very slow. But the the consequence of the slowness is it's like you're marinating in these characters. Mm. And although not a lot happens quickly when things do happen, they they are felt with great emotional intensity. And I thought it was one of those series where, again, nobody put a foot wrong. It was so beautifully made and the acting in it is fabulous. <laughs> it was in some ways a forerunner to sort of... 10 or 15 years later, more modern productions like A Dance to the Music of Time and Our Yeah, but those productions, I mean, again, I mean, I liked them. I, I thought Our Friends and the North was fabulous, but, but A Dance to the Music of Time, which is one of my favourite sequence of novels, I mean, I've read that those novels several times over. Yeah. Uh, and they did them much better on the radio. The problem with doing them on television is you need 26 hours. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they had, you know, four 90 minute films. So it was like watching them on fast forward. Whereas with Brideshead, they it was the perfect length. 13 hours was the perfect length because they more or less filmed it as written. The famous story about it is that although it's credited to being adapted by John Mortimer, he didn't write a word. It was all done by the producer and director, but they didn't want to sack John Mortimer because he was the big name. Right. Gave it kudos. So when it won an Emmy, John Blooming Mortimer went up and took the award and it was all a complete fiction he had nothing to do with it but they they were obviously not experienced adapters so they just took the view that they would film it more or less as it was written in the book which is incredibly unusual and and, and very naive it could have failed terribly but actually it worked superbly and what it is is basically it's a sort of cross-generational story that sort of well how far how long does it span maybe 20 years or something yeah is it? i mean it follows charles Ryder is the kind of central character and it follows him from going to university all the way through to the second world war and his interactions with the marchmain the aristocratic marchmain family and they are uh, catholics and they sort of have that it's all the era of kind of aristocrats doomed by high taxation and you know the changing world and their own inner demons so as a family of catholics they all have real they're all basically totally fucked up <laughs> <laughs> but it's um you know we do up really well in britain and you know I, I find a lot to relate to you know i've i've had some friends who certainly have at least that level of dysfunction and uh it was just beautifully beautifully realized you know the, the performances are very touching and there are moments of uh, a real pathos and agony at times and you know i don't like to th see things that are just you know all neatly wrapped up happy endings you know life is much messier than that and although you know some people can't get past the poshness of it but i think if you can there is real depth there well, I was going to say, just as a quick counterpoint, what do you think of, like, say, Downton Abbey? Which I think Downton Abbey is tripe. Yeah, it's, it's like a really watered-down version of the same sort of thing. It's really bad. I mean, yeah. you know, my view of Downton Abbey, I call it tea towel television. It's, it's sort of, you know, 
has absolutely not a vestige of truth in it. The idea that an aristocratic family would give a monkeys what the maid or the butler thought is so far from reality. I mean, it's my era and I've read a lot about it and history, yeah. you know, and, and it just I find it offensive that they could have got away with something, especially when they had such wonderful cast and beautiful production values. You know, it looks lavish, but the attitudes are wrong. The characters are unreal. The plotting is negligible you know crude but you know i i wish i'd had that level of success <laughs> so um good luck. But, but i just think i think the pity is that it's such a missed opportunity because if it had been if you'd had those production values in that cast and had an amazing script it would have been mesmerically brilliant instead of annoyingly soapily bad <laughs> Shall we move on to number five, then? I think we should, um, before I get sued by Julie. <laughs> um, so number five, here's, yeah, had to be in there, Top of the Pops. Oh, really? Because Top of the Top Pops. Of the Pops um, I loved that show as a child. I worked on it when I first joined the BBC. I worked on it for two and a half years. Um, I I just, it, you know, I, I mean, I love pop music and I love fashion in the kind of broad sense not that i'm in any way fashionable but i love watching what people think is fashionable but i love well yeah hearing it and so the audience is just watching the audiences is sometimes a joy and also it reflects your own timeline so that at the moment radio at bbc4 are showing the 1982 episodes and i was young and i thought you know with it man <laughs> and um you know so that it's incredibly nostalgic uh but of course it's you know, it's a shame that it's not running anymore. Um, but if you dip in at any point between sort of the 60s up to its final year, 2006, it gives you a snapshot of something that was going on. And, um, you know, I love Pan's People and all the dance groups. I love the shonkiness of it. It's so BBC. Yeah. And I loved working on it. I mean, I adored it, the adrenaline of it, the fact that if it wasn't live, it was as live. The the just the sort of crackle in the air, the electricity, the the, the fun of it. Um, I'm you know made really good friends on it, and you know I, I it's very special to me, Top of the Pops. And it's also it's kind of also something that's important. I use the word training ground, or I think one of us did earlier on. Top of the Pops was another one of those programs where you'd go to Top of the Pops and you'd do some work on the Top of the Pops and what you learnt there you'd be able to take on into sort of oh, well, anything yeah. else. I mean, BBC, the BBC, you know, I mean, Top of the Pops, Tomorrow's World, Saturday Mornings, Blue Peter, Nationwide, you know, they had a lot of Warhorse shows and, you know, they had a very big staff then and everybody had to learn and those were safe shows to learn on because you'd always be with a very experienced pair of hands. Hmm. I mean, I... I you know, I've got very fond memories of the of the producers that who were doing Top of the Pops when I was there, um, because they're so talented and uh, and funny. And when people are really talented, they are relaxed sometimes about how they work. So the day we used to have like a two and a half hour lunch break, and you know, so I have these <laughs> memories of going up to the bar at TV Centre, especially in the summer. And, you know, it was just wonderful. And then, you know, it wasn't that you weren't working hard. It's just that you didn't need to over rehearse because if you had a producer director who knew what they were doing, you'd run through the morning. You would rehearse a band that you'd run through it maybe two or three times with each band. And there are probably five or six bands on each show. Then you'd have this long, long lunch break. Then you'd have a, a, a stagger through a tech run with the DJ and then you do a dress run and then you break for supper. And after supper, the audience would come in, there'd be a warm up and then you'd either be live at half seven 
or you'd record as live at half seven. And sometimes after the live show or the as live show, you would do you would pre-record a couple of tracks for a future show. And then that was it. I always used to feel sorry for the audience because they'd come in thinking they were going to be there all night and they'd be in and out, usually within yeah. an hour. And um, and it would off and the set would be being pulled down around them. But it was a great day. And, you know, it was just so they never felt too pressured. And when you were actually rehearsing, it always felt like something going on. You know, there's cameras gliding about that space. Um, people were always surprised by how small the studio was compared to how it looked on TV. Um, but, you know, it was, it, I, w- I was very, very lucky to have that because I was the right age as well. You know, I was very I was yeah. only in my early 20s. So that's the right age to be working on a show like Top of the Pops. Right. I wish, I, I, wish I'd kept, I wish I'd kept my Top of the Pops T-shirt, though. But there you go. <laughs> number four, then, Richard. What number number four? four. Again, a contrast here. Dad's Army. Oh, yes. So again, quintessential English humour. You can watch or listen to an episode of Dad's Army, but watch an episode of Dad's Army as many times as you like. And there will always be pleasure to be had because that is such a wonderful cast. And they're all, you know, at the top of their game most of the time. And I just think the humour creases me up every <laughs> single time. And I love John LeMessurier particularly um, because he represents to me the classic sort of understated Englishman for whom everything's a bit of an effort. Um, and, you know, all the little characters, the only fly in the ointment which made me debate whether or not to knock it out was I can't bear Corporal Jones. Oh, I, I have a theory that every sitcom is ruined partly by one character being too over the top or, or played in too broad a manner. And for me, that's what he is. He's, you know, mugging and overacting and, you know, just and he's all about catchphrases, whereas the others are funny without. The, you right. know, don't need to say I don't like it up him every five seconds. So well, uh, he's not my cup of tea. But with that aside, there's still so much to enjoy in Dad's Army that I thought that would be a good one. And it's a really it has a it's one of those programs that really evokes the sense of place and time. Yes, it does. Yes. And, and Without... I think it does that both in terms of, you know, the kind of era, but also in terms of, uh, again, watching it cosily yeah. at home. You know, I, when I was little and it was on, I didn't get a lot of the jokes and I didn't understand the backdrop in terms of, you know, the World War Two references because it's about the home front and some of that stuff. You, you know, you don't do that at school. I didn't really get about rationing and things. But anyway, I love it now. So fantastic. Right, into the top three, Richard. Well, is... that's where it gets really tricky. So num- number three, you won't be surprised to learn, is Blue Peter. Oh, well. Um, so Blue Peter, again, is part of my DNA. Um, and, I, you know, I was a Blue Peter child, a Blue Peter family. By the time I was 17, I wanted to be the Blue Peter editor. You know, I came, got to the BBC, worked my way up, got the chance to work on Blue Peter, spent 10 years of my working life on there, which was almost entirely except for the last few months a paradise of a job you know it was one of those real it was like having your own kind of you could stick a pin in a map and say i'm going there to make a film or i want to have you know three million quids worth of cartier jewels in the in the studio and you'd phone them up and they'd go yes it was a show where if you phoned people up they said yes you could step be over the red rope you could meet fascinating people 
you had the best combination of doing things live so there were no retakes and hanging around or if you were going to record you were in the big studios with a proper budget or you were filming on location with really good camera crews it was a total joy so i loved watching it i loved working on it that's why it's number three it was a chance to blue peter is a chance to either do if you're working on it or see if you're watching it everything and anything which absolutely. is absolutely yeah well, the, the true magazine program that mm. the whole point is that you could go from cartier history of cartier jewels into sumo wrestling into making a christmas card you know there were no kind of i mean there were things about it i didn't like i never liked the garden and actually i hated the makes when i was a kid but they <laughs> they, they were very very popular um and i used to do them because they were so popular when i was working on it but um oh and hey if something comes along that you don't like five minutes later exactly be something new will come along um of course presenters loved makes because it was seven minutes of them on their own talking with nobody else <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what will we find at number two then, Richard? Number two, you won't be surprised to learn, is Doctor Who. Oh, but I'm disappointed it's not at number well, one. I'm not Doctor, really. Doctor, yeah, I know you're not really. Doctor Who, um, rather like Blue Peter, Top of the Pops. You know, these are these are DNA BBC programmes that you, I can't remember a time when, as a family, we didn't watch Doctor Who. And usually with, you know crumpets and donuts and cups of tea and just you know that again the whole thing like the ghost stories enjoyable fear you know i still have a scar on my arm from when my brother chased me around the house being a mummy from pyramids of mars <laughs> and and i forced my hand through a, a plate glass window trying to to shut him out so he couldn't get me so i have doctor who to thank for a, a permanent scar um but yeah no it was a it, it was one of those shows that gave me such pleasure then and then obviously uh in years later it was hugely significant although i've certainly had periods where i've been off it and felt annoyed with it and i don't like it at the moment you know i don't like peter capaldi very much and i you know it doesn't matter because some it'll change and then something will come along i mean i adored matt smith i thought he was absolutely wonderful um and so i was due to have my period where i didn't like it so much (laughs) you know hopefully the next next lot along i'll i'll like that more well, on a bigger scale, that's kind of like Blue Peter and Top of the Pops in that, you know, if, if there's a bit you don't like, don't worry about it too much because exactly. it will change. That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, same with Top of the Pops. I didn't like kind of heavy metal and things. But in a, if you could bear that, then two minutes later, Pan's People would be on. Well, yeah. And who doesn't like Pan's People? Exactly. <laughs> OK, Richard, what will we find? Oh, and this is it. This is number one. Number one, funnily enough, after our uh, my references to Downton Abbey, the programme which I think uh, Julian Fellows has to thank for Downton, uh, Upstairs, Downstairs. So, again, Upstairs, Downstairs was a programme that I came to as a child. I wasn't always able to watch it because it was on too late. But I actually kind of got mainly into it through reading the novelizations first. And then when Channel 4 started in the early 80s, they repeated um the series and that was my first chance i really got to kind of see it properly and i've just loved it always i mean it never lets you down you know again what wonderful cast i love the fact that the basic idea is it's the story of a british family from 1903 to 1930 and through that time 
the great events of the era are reflected in the in the lives of the family upstairs and down. It's a kind of brilliantly simple concept. One of the writers said it's like opening the doll's house and you look into the cross section of the house from the cellar and the kitchen up to the kind of the rooms at the top of the house. And it, it never kind of let you down, really. You know, there, there was always something to enjoy in it. And uh, uh, I wrote a book about it and I used the series as a way of examining forensically how a TV show is made. And in some ways I, I regretted it because when you do that, when you go in search of the story behind your favourite TV shows, mm. you know, of course, you, you answer your curiosity and you find out what the people were like. and all that But it's that whole thing about be careful what you wish for. And, you know, your heroes can have feet of clay. You discover that, you know, everybody making a TV show is stressful. There's lots of competition and rivalry and bitchiness. And, you know, there's also great friendships and camaraderie and all of that, too. But sometimes you and my wife would always say to me, you know, she didn't want to know. She doesn't never wants to know any behind the scenes stuff. She wants to because it spoils her enjoyment. And I think she has got a point. And when I last rewatched Upstairs, Downstairs, I deliberately almost wiped my memory of everything I know about the series and thought, I'm just going to watch this like I first did when I was 10, as though I don't know anything about acting or anything about cameras. I'm just watching the story. And it really refreshed it and brought it back to me. And I did the same thing with some classic Doctor Who. And it, likewise, instead of me sitting there thinking, oh, I know they all hated the director or, I know the, <laughs> you know, what I, it, it kind of liberates you from the weight of knowledge. And sometimes, although we love to know things and we want to find out these things, sometimes it's really nice to go back to basics and enjoy them for what they are as, you know, a supreme piece of entertainment. Well, and actually, a good story will withstand that weight of knowledge about how it came to be. Yeah, of course, of course. And you know, you don't have to be a nosy neb like we are. Uh, you, you know, my wife is right. And my daughter's the same. They both of them, you know, in fact, my daughter, she would shriek if I went to click on a DVD to the kind of, you know, the behind the scenes package or the interviews with the actors. She, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And, you know, <laughs> most actors don't talk much sense, particularly not when you're asking them about acting. Um, you know, she's I think she's very wise. Well, so there you are. That's the top 10. The agony of all the many, many shows that all creatures, great and small, could have been in there. Edward and Mrs. Simpson, Mad Men. There are so many. But that's the joy, you see, when you think about when you actually ask yourself that question, you think it's incredible how rich um, British and American TV are, the amount of choices. And, you know, that whole thing. Oh, there's nothing to watch. Actually, there's so much to watch. Oh, no question. Well, We've kind of gone over time, so I'm going to have to let you run off. Yes, it's but, time for me to shut up. <laughs> but thanks for sharing all that. And I think... My pleasure. Oh, I think people will, as well as enjoying listening to you doing your top ten and talking about the book, having you on the programme, you actually yeah. get to learn so much about the things that the people who listen to this podcast love. So it is always an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. And any complaints, send them to you and not me. <laughs> like last time or, or not exactly. like last time no no quite uh cheers Good. richard thanks a lot Jay. have a great christmas you too thank you and uh well oh and it just remains for me to say then until next week we'll speak again soon
Benched, a drabble with regards to Black Orchid by J.R. Salville. That's me. There's some chap at the door, dear. Shall I see what he wants? I know you're indisposed. Yes, dear. Says he's something to do with that cricket team you're supposed to be playing for tomorrow. Oh, says you're not to bother coming along. They've called the game off. Well, that's a shame. You were looking forward to that. No, didn't give a reason. Just said it was important you didn't waste your time travelling all that way. Funny-looking chap. Question marks all over his pullover. And have you seen? They've only gone and put a police box in our road. Spoiled for choice for William Hartnell. A drabble with regards to The Husbands of River Song by Elton Townend Jones. I love his lean wrath and hard-to-getness, his clumsy-fingered pedantry and fizzy fezziness, his cocky bounciness and fast-talking scoobiness. I love the fantastic goofiness that masks his weary shyness, the gruff mysteriousness that hides his aching hearts. I love his manic enthusiasm and vivacity, his chuckling coyness and calculating majesty, his overblown lusts and childish grumps, his vulnerable diligence and need for peace, his arrogant, attention-seeking scarfiness, his voracious, velvety frilliness and crotchety charm, his outraged improvisations and giddiness, and above all else, I love his love, the joy behind his ire, his doctrinus, his one true doctrinus, first and foremost. From a Time Lord for Change, Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Drabbles, available now from Chinbeard Books, and featuring Drabbles by four members of the Blue Box podcast team, in aid of Mind, a mental health charity. <laughs> 